Hello, and welcome to this Biblical Education series on the book of Exodus. You can find this series and others online at onefellowshipumc.org and on the One Fellowship Church podcast. Visit us online to learn more about our congregation and the work that we do in Waco, Texas. Thank you, and enjoy. I know for many of us, this has been a busy week. This has been a heavy week. And so I am thankful that I get to come back um, and study this text, come back and think through this text, come back, open up myself, and let this text speak into me. And so, my friends, if you will please join me in prayer this evening. Lord, we come before you right now to lay down all of the stresses, the anxieties, the pains, the worries, the concerns that we often carry. We want to lay them down, breathe deeply, and experience you. May you open our eyes. May you open our hearts. May you open our lives that we may live a love that is truly inconceivable in this world. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. My friends, we are continuing in our study of the book of Exodus. Uh, And last week we talked about the introduction to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapters 1 and 2. We looked at some of the key themes there in the introduction. And we noted that oftentimes the introduction will clue us in to some of the themes that will hold the rest of the story together. And so this week, I want us to look at uh, chapters three and four. This is particularly the call of Moses. And then uh, next week, we'll come back and we will look at the uh, plagues of Egypt. The call of Moses is a remarkably significant story, a remarkably significant point in the book of uh, in the book of Exodus. Um, and for, for many reasons, but uh, for one, not only are we going to get the call of the, the, one of our central characters, central leaders throughout Torah, throughout the rest of Torah, um, but we also get a sort of template in many respects. We have to remember the significance, that, uh, the significant importance of Moses throughout the subsequent prophetic tradition in, in the Hebrew Bible. Moses becomes the archetype of what it means to be a prophet in the biblical Hebrew worldview. And in many ways, we are going to find echoes of these themes that we see here in the story of Moses. We're going to see echoes of these in stories of other prophets. And in fact, in the end of Torah, in in the book of Deuteronomy, it is going to present uh, present Moses as sort of the template that other prophets will fill and will follow in the Hebrew biblical tradition. And so here we look at the call of Moses. And we will note that uh, in many ways, the themes within this call are going to show up for subsequent prophets as well. Moses is a remarkably significant character, remarkably powerful character. And when we look at the call, as we've noted before, oftentimes in Hebrew storytelling within the Hebrew Bible, the way that a character is introduced, uh, the way that a call is given will shape how we view the subsequent mission of that character. 
And so if uh, when we want to understand the prophet Jeremiah, we look at Jeremiah's call in Jeremiah chapter one. And that introduces some of the key themes that are going to carry us through the subsequent oracles. When we want to understand uh, Isaiah, we look at Isaiah's call in Isaiah six. And that introduces some key themes that we see carry us through the subsequent oracles. When we want to understand Ezekiel, we do the same thing with Ezekiel one and two. And so, my friends, to, to really get a handle on, on Moses, to see uh, the way that Moses enters the stage in his prophetic role, we are going to look here at Exodus chapters 3 and 4. Now, I want to pause for a moment to recognize a very unique literary feature of the book of Exodus. Even though I refer to Moses as a prophet, and Moses is the archetype of a prophet in the biblical tradition, I want to recognize that the book of Exodus does not actually call. Moses a prophet, even though so much of the imagery around Moses is prophetic imagery. It is a fascinating part of the way in which the book of Exodus is going to tell this story about Moses. And so, my friends, without further ado, let us dive right in here. We are flipping over to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 1, and here we find Moses. Remember, he has fled from Egypt. Uh, he killed an Egyptian. It was found out. He fled, and there he... Um, uh, he comes in, he, he flees, he finds um, this family uh, of uh, the Midianites. Um, he finds uh, Jethro, a priest of the Midianites, and his seven daughters, and he is taken into the family. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. We want to pause for a second because we open with Moses the shepherd. Okay, this is, this is new imagery for Moses, but it is not new imagery for those of us who have been reading the stories of the Bible thus far. We know that shepherding imagery is highly symbolic, not just in the Bible, but in the ancient Mesopotamian and ancient Mediterranean world. Because shepherding imagery is often used to depict kings. We see um, in, in ancient reliefs, in ancient storytelling, oftentimes there is a parallel between the actions of a shepherd and the actions of a king. So just like how the shepherd is supposed to guide and protect the sheep, so does a king guide and protect the people. Um, think about where we've seen this elsewhere in the biblical tradition. David, a king, the archetype of a king, this idealization of kingship in the, in the Hebrew Bible begins the story as a shepherd. And we see themes from shepherding carry over into how they tell the story of David's kingship. Uh, throughout the Bible, something else we see, there is another character who shows up as a shepherd frequently. That's God. The Bible oftentimes presents God as our shepherd. Think of Psalm 23. And one of the reasons for that is because a central affirmation that we get out of the Bible, particularly um, around the texts that are articulated, that are crafted surrounding the exile, is this idea that God is ultimately our king. So here we open Moses. Okay, he is a shepherd, but this shepherding imagery we're going to see is highly symbolic. Moses is keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He had his flock beyond the wilderness. Now we need to pause here because now we are getting a setting for the story. The setting is out in the wilderness. And we have noted that uh, earlier, particularly in the book of Genesis, that the wilderness is also often highly symbolic. Think about it. The wilderness is away from society. Society oftentimes gives us social structures. It gives us institutions that shape 
how we relate to one another, it shapes our access to one another. Think about it. In a city in the ancient world, you have walls around the city that holds out the wilderness. The walls can hold out threats. The walls limit who does and does not have access to you. Inside of the city, you have your own home where you have walls that limit who does and does not have access to you. And when you engage other people inside of society, we usually engage them through these social spaces that shape how we relate to one another. When, uh, when we encounter people in church, we may relate to them differently or engage them differently than when we encounter them at work, when we encounter them down at the chamber, when we encounter them on the golf course. These spaces where we encounter one another oftentimes shape how we engage one another. But remember, my friends, that now we are in the wilderness, and the wilderness does not have those social systems. It does not have those institutions. It does not have the walls. The wilderness is untamed. The wilderness is a place where we do not get to restrict who does and does not have access to us. The wilderness is a place where we often encounter things somewhat unexpected because it is not structured. And so, my friends, it is no surprise that in the wilderness, we often get a particular visitor, a visitor who shows up unannounced and a visitor who shows up sometimes uninvited. The wilderness in the Bible is a place where we often encounter God. And we often encounter God showing up unexpected, working in ways that we do not expect to, him to work. Think in, uh, back in the Jacob story uh, in the book of Genesis. Where does Jacob encounter God? Well, it's not when he is at home and it is not when he is at Laban's home. It's when he's in between, when he's in the wilderness. We're going to get this kind of imagery again when the children of Israel wander throughout the wilderness. Whose presence is there with them the entire time is the presence of God. And oftentimes the wilderness in the prophets is a place of, of almost recreation where we encounter God in this very unrestricted kind of way where God can show up unannounced and sometimes even uninvited. Something else about the wilderness is it has a lot of creation imagery. It's creation untamed. And one of the fascinating things about this is that oftentimes it is in the wilderness where we get this imagery of recreation. And so in the wilderness, we often get uh, God showing up unannounced, unexpected, and performing creative actions, creating things in ways that we are not ready for or not expecting. Think about in the wilderness when God create or when God encounters Jacob and renames him, reshapes his identity. Here in the wilderness, Moses' identity is about to be reshaped, recreated. In the wilderness, when the children of Israel are wandering, they are going to be created into a nation. We get this imagery over and over again. And so we have Moses introduced with a highly symbolic imagery of, of, um, of being a shepherd, but also he is in the wilderness. He's in a place where we are going to expect an unannounced visitor. God. Let us continue, my friends, here. So he is in the wilderness. He comes to Horeb, and it's called the mountain of God. Watch for this language throughout the book of Exodus, throughout Torah, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. <clears throat> now let's pause right there. This is what we sometimes call a theophany, God showing up in a physical manifestation. And we know throughout the Bible, oftentimes these theophanies take the form of God showing up in images of images of fire almost. So uh, we get this throughout Torah um, when God shows up as a pillar of fire. Think of Exodus 19, Exodus 24, ex um, 
Exodus 40, this imagery of God showing up and there's this physical manifestation. And so here um, in the call narrative of Moses, we get God showing up and there's this imagery of fire that's going to carry us throughout the rest of the storytelling. <coughs> so the angel of the Lord appears to him uh, um, in a flame of fire out of the bush. He looked, the bush was blaming or was blazing and yet it was not consumed. And this is one of the fascinating characteristics. Uh, we often call it the burning bush um, in, in our Christian tradition. Truth is, it's not necessarily a burning bush. It's a non-burning bush. It's a bush that's on fire, but not burning. And that's what made it so fascinating. And there's this question, why a bush exactly? Is there symbolism to this as well? Well, there's been symbolism to so much in the storytelling so far. We would assume so. And, uh, you know, scholars go back and forth about what the symbolism of a bush could mean. Oftentimes bushes or trees uh, are, can be symbolic for things. We think about the symbolism of trees in the story of creation, in the story of Adam and Eve, um, Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and so we would expect that here as well. But here's the fascinating thing about the bush. Um, this Hebrew word for bush is seneth. And the bush shows up on Sinai. And so Moses approaches this seneth on Sinai. Y'all see the wordplay, the connection between the words. We see this a lot in Hebrew literature and Hebrew poetry. We see it a lot in the prophets where words that sound similar will sometimes have connections or they'll be used to build connections between meaning, connections uh, be between prophecy sometimes. A lot of times we see prophetic meaning communicated in this way. And so here we get this kind of wordplay. Moses is on Sinai and he stands before the Sinai. Moses said, I must turn aside. We're in verse three. I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why this bush is not burning up. What's going on here? <clears throat> verse four. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Now I want to pause there. Notice who is calling out to Moses. This is God calling out to Moses. Now, it, previously it had just mentioned who is it that appears? Well, it says the angel of the Lord appears, but now God's voice is coming forth. And this actually um, is not on that, all that unusual, not just in biblical storytelling, but uh, there are some indications in other ancient Mesopotamian literature of a messenger showing up and uh, someone else's voice coming out or someone else's words being delivered. You see this language of an angel of the Lord. We have to remember it's not necessarily an angel as we may conceive of it in our sort of modern popular imaginations. The word angel here, malach, just means um, a messenger. And in fact, there are many places where this messenger shows up in the Bible and we're a little unsure. Is this a heavenly messenger? Is this a, a, a human messenger? It could be either. But what we know is that even though the messenger is sort of the manifestation or appearance of the divine presence, who is it that is speaking through the messenger? It is God. God has showed up unexpected and unannounced. Where are we? We are in the wilderness. Let's continue. The Lord saw that he had turned aside. God called to him from a bush and God said, Moses, Moses. And it's fascinating. We get a lot of call narratives and oftentimes a duplication of the name shows up. We see this in other call narratives as well. Uh, let's continue. <laughs> and, he, and he said, here I am. And then the, God said, then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
and we think about this this place, this this makom, this place that is signifying holiness. Well, wait, where are we? We're in the wilderness. Wilderness doesn't have these 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 formal structures or institutions guiding how we engage the world, how we engage people, how we engage creation, or how we engage God. And suddenly now we are in the wilderness, and this is the holy place, the place where God's presence shows up, and instantly it becomes holy. Mo, uh, he said further, and this is in verse six, God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And in this statement where God identifies who God is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it connects this story back to the stories of Genesis. And, and this is really important for the storytelling because there are a few places throughout uh, throughout the book of Exodus, uh, Leviticus, and Numbers, where we get these connections back to Genesis. But what's fascinating is there are there are just a few, um, and in fact, it it this is um, as the storytelling unfolds, we see that different stories unfold in different ways. Sometimes even using language that seems distinct, uh, and yet we get these little pieces. Um, these little declarations that are going to connect these stories that help us read them all together. And so we're at one of these connecting points. Once again, notice we are about to set off on the Exodus event. Things are going to look differently than the way they looked back in the book of Genesis. And so where we have two different approaches to storytelling, we get this, this little staple in there reminding us, look back. The same God that worked with them is now going to work here in the Exodus, even though we're going to see things working uh, in slightly distinctive ways. The Lord said, we're in verse 7, the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And re remember how chapter 2 ended. Chapter 2 ends with the, the children of Israel crying out under their suffering and God hearing them. And this theme, there, there, there are these two themes that, that are becoming intertwined. One is the theme of, a, of, of crying out. <laughs> and in fact, we're going to see this throughout the stories in, that follows. Uh, throughout these early chapters, it's Israel, who is the Israelites who are continually crying out. And what we're going to find is by the, by the end of the 10 plagues now, it's going to be the Egyptians who are crying out. And so oftentimes when we read these 10 plagues and when we're trying to interpret them, one thing we have to recognize is what one of the things that takes place among over the course of these plagues, is God takes what the Egyptians did to the Israelites and turns it upon them. The story begins with the Israelites crying out unto the Egyptians, and it is going to move to where now the Egyptians are going to experience what they caused the Israelites to feel, to feel this crying out. But something, another theme we see here is this theme of a God who hears. This is a God who hears. And what's fascinating is they juxtapose this theme. God hears with a situation in which we would ordinarily ask, does God hear us? I mean, how many times do we go through hard times, difficult situations, painful situations, and we wonder, does God hear us? And so here in the storytelling, we have one of these situations where uh, people could look around and very easily say, does God hear? And the text is going to affirm this is a God who hears in those moments. And we see that uh, uh, throughout um, the biblical storytelling, these, this emphasis, God hears. And it emphasizes that in those times when it might seem the hardest to believe that God is hearing. Let's continue. 
Verse seven, then the Lord said, I have observed um, the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. Here we go. Verse eight. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians. Now, let me pause. Notice that God is coming down. There's this spatial movement of God. And so it's sort of reflecting this sense of God up above, but God hears and comes down. We get this language elsewhere as well. Um, I, I think about particularly, you know, the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, recall in the story of the Tower of Babel when um, God's... Uh, uh, when the humanity tries to build this tower and God has to come down to see it. Humanity builds this greatest monument they can and God has to come down in order to see it. There's this, this physical elevation of how we're conceptualizing God. God is going to bring them out, verse eight, to the land, uh, to that land, to um, out of that land, forgive me, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. It's this language of a land flowing with milk and honey that we get echoed throughout the rest of Torah. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. There's that theme of crying again. Verse 9, I have seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. So, come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people the Israelites, out of Egypt. And it's fascinating here. <laughs> Moses knows this suffering. Moses knows this situation. God shows up, God hears, and now God's going to send Moses to do something about it. Every now and then, God shows up and asks people, to do something about it. Of course, God is going to be driving this entire story. God is going to be empowering Moses. He's going to be equipping Moses. He's sending Moses, but still operating through human hands in many respects. And, and, and this, this is going to make Moses a little bit nervous. In fact, in, in the stories that ensue or in the dialogue that ensues between God and Moses, um, there are going to be uh, four discussions, <coughs> or I should say four objections in which Moses says, I'm not the person to do this. Um, Moses has these four objections um, to, to, to God's call. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I'll be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship on this mountain. Think about that. Moses says, who am I to go? And God says, well, I'm sending you. You know, and, and oftentimes we, we have that, uh, uh, that teaching in modern Christianity, that saying we, we use, that kind of maxim, um, that uh, God doesn't call the qualified, God qualify, or qualifies uh, the called. The called, and we we can go back and forth about how that's sometimes used in in our in our popular um, imaginations. But in this sense here, we do see what is the one thing that is most important for Moses' mission. The one thing that is most important, well, it's this call. It's the sense that God is sending him, and we see this echoed throughout the other prophets. Uh, this idea, what is it that sets them apart? Well, it's, it's this calling that they receive from God. And oftentimes it is the call from God that, that shows up in, in Jeremiah, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, um, that is going to set the stage for how we understand the prophet's mission and the, the validity of the prophet's mission. <clears throat> the, the other thing that I notice here is what is the sign? Well, the sign is actually worship. 
You think about that. Worship might not be something that we ordinarily conceive of as a sign. We're going to find other signs in this story to come. And we want to remember that in the Bible, signs serve a purpose in the storytelling. Signs aren't just things to uh, amaze us. Signs uh, oftentimes serve to, uh, to validate something. And so when we see a sign, that cues us in that we should be listening for a message. When we see a sign, we should often be cued in to listen for a message because signs and messages oftentimes come hand in hand. <coughs> Here, the sign is worship. And I just find it fascinating that when Moses says, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to do this, God says, well, your sign is worship. Keep reading. Verse 13. But Moses said to God, <coughs> Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And a very legitimate question. Remember, we're operating in the ancient world. Everyone has their own gods. People have entire pantheons. And how do you identify one pantheon from another? How do you identify one god from another in an ancient world filled with gods? Well, you would need a name, right? Moses apparently is unfamiliar with this. Who is sending me? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And, and, and let, let me pause here because at first glance, this sounds like a, a remarkably vague answer that does not answer the question at all, really. I mean, imagine someone asking, okay, so who are you? And you're like, I am who I am. Well, that doesn't help much, does it? But in here, <coughs> we, we're, we're back into this level of wordplay. Remember, oftentimes there are associations between words that sound similar. Here, Hebrew, asher I am who I am. It's a little awkward uh, uh, grammatically. It could be translated as I am what I am or I will be who I will be. It's from this verb to be, haya in Hebrew. Um, and, and it could be, you know, I will be who I will be. I am who I am. Uh, there could be this sense of creation almost, um, you know, to be, to cause to be, something of that nature. But here's what's fascinating is that this verb shows up in, in uh, another couple of verses. So I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now that doesn't sound very helpful at first. Then verse 15, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And here's why this matters, because this word Lord um, is not actually a title in Hebrew. It's a name. Y-H-W-H. -H. Sometimes uh, we pronounce it um, or suspect it may have been pronounced as Yahweh. And this is where we, where we get uh, the name Jehovah from and stuff like that. But remember, in, in the Hebrew tradition, in the Hebrew reading tradition, you never pronounce that name. That name is too holy to pass upon human lips. And so oftentimes when, when you uh, learn to read uh, texts like this, when you come across that name um, in, in the Hebrew tradition, you would oftentimes say either Adonai, which just means my Lord, or Hashem, which means the name. That, it's a holy name. It does not pass upon our lips. And so many times in English translations, they honor this reading tradition by not printing the name, 
but rather by printing the Lord. And you'll see the word Lord in all capital letters. When you come across the word Lord in all capital letters, that often means that it is the name of God. But one thing that we have to recognize, though, is that it is just that. It is a name. It is a personal name. And there are a few things we learn from this name. Um, one, the name um, <clears throat> comes from that same verb, to be. Uh, likely, I should say, comes from that same verb to be, that same verb that shows up in echia asher echia, uh, I will be who I will be. But also this this um, this verb to be, uh, there's a question, how much meaning should be assigned to it? Does this Does this mean God is the one who causes to be? Is that where the name comes from? Could it come from the sense that God is creator, the one who causes being, the thing, the idea that God is the source of being? Um, we get all these connections that we can draw. It's very hard to say definitively uh, the meaning behind this name because the tradition is, is, um, is quite old. But something else to note, though, is that the name of God is a verb um, or it, it's a verbal root. God is identified as a God who acts, who has identified as a, as, by the actions that God does inside of this world. And so it's, it's fascinating to look at this revelation of a name. Now, we've talked throughout this study that names are significant. Names are important. Names are oftentimes very significant. When, when we uh, see names given, we know to pause in that moment in the story. And here now, it's the name of God that is given. The identity. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. Verse 16. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God, uh, um, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have given heed to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. I declare that I will bring you up from the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to your voice. You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and tell him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us go three days journey into the wilderness so that we can sacrifice to the Lord our God. Notice the request here. Sometimes in this storytelling, it's going to say um, that the Lord is commanding for Pharaoh to let the people go. But other times it's saying, no, the Lord is just commanding to let them go out into the wilderness to sacrifice, to worship. We did just get that theme of worship a few verses earlier, didn't we? All right, verse 19. I know, however, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless he is compelled by a mighty hand. And we want to pause for a second because that language of mighty hand is going to show up a lot, not just in Torah, but throughout the rest of the Bible. And it, does, and it shows up, the same imagery shows up elsewhere in the ancient world. A mighty hand is this image of strength, this image of strength that can move things to someone's will. And so here, God is saying, it's going to take a show of force to get Pharaoh to do this. Why? <laughs> I will stretch, um, verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand, strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will go perform in it. After that, he will let you go. I will bring this people into such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty handed. And so we get this imagery of as the Israelites leave, um, they will be taking the riches of Egypt with them. And we get this similar, this similar imagery back, remember Genesis chapter 15, when, uh, when, the, uh, 
the slavery in Egypt and the Exodus is spoken about there. That's how they go forth. And remember, we, we get that theme throughout a lot of these stories, that when they go through seasons in which they are foreigners in someone else's land, uh, seasons in which they are threatened, when they go through these periods in their history, they come out stronger. They come out um, they come out with blessings on the other side, which is a fascinating component of the way that uh, these stories frame things like the slavery here in Egypt and things such as the exile in Babylon. Let's, let's continue here. Uh, I want to skip down to chapter four, because in chapter four, this is where we get Moses's next objection. Remember, no, Moses is not particularly, um, not particularly on board with this plan yet. Moses answered, verse one, but suppose they don't believe me. Or listen to me, but say the Lord hasn't appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground. It became a snake. Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it, and it became a staff in his hand again. So that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So notice Moses's objection is, what if they don't believe me? <clears throat> what if they don't believe the message that I'm giving? And so the Lord gives him a sign to perform. And we, we remember that oftentimes when we see signs, signs are going to be attached to messages. So when we see a sign or something like that in, in the way that these stories are told, um, it's not just uh, because, you know, God is looking to impress everyone. God is not doing parlor tricks. Oftentimes these signs are there to draw our attention to the message, to catch our attention so that we can hear the message. Now, notice what is being used for the sign here. It's the staff, right? The staff that Moses used as a shepherd is now becoming a staff that is going to be used to ultimately lead the people out of Egypt <coughs> through these signs that God's performing. And so we mentioned that when Moses was introduced, we get this shepherding imagery that's highly symbolic. And we see that symbolism carrying throughout this story. We're going to see the symbolism of a shepherd. Moses begins shepherding the sheep. God calls Moses to use the implements of a shepherd to now guide the people. God now begins acting through the implements of the shepherd to guide the people. God acts as the shepherd of the people. We begin seeing these connections throughout the stories. Ultimately, um, showing how the imagery of Moses as a shepherd is just kind of this foreshadowing of how Moses and ultimately God is going to lead the people. Let's continue. Verse six. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand in the cloak. When he took it out, it was leprous. Um, and then when he puts his hand back in, he takes it out. And all of a sudden it is well again. There's this, this healing once again. And then God is going to give Moses this third sign of being able to, um, being able to turn water, uh, being able to turn water in the blood. And so we get these three signs, the staff, the, the hand, and being able to turn water in the blood. And what's fascinating is the third, uh, the third of these signs is going to become the first plague of Egypt. So we get these sort of three smaller signs, but the last of the smaller signs becomes the first of the big wonders or the big plagues. Let's continue here. Um, I want to scroll down to uh, verse 10, if we could, because this is going to be Moses' last objection to God here in verse 10. Remember, Moses is still not entirely certain. And Moses is going to say to the Lord, he's going to say, verse 10, Oh, my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now, that you have spoken to your servants. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. 
And and I want to pause for a moment to um, uh, to to sort of reflect upon the importance of this imagery. Moses is complaining that the reason why he cannot speak on behalf of God is because he cannot speak. Remember the role of a prophet. Oftentimes in, in the Hebrew tradition throughout Hebrew storytelling here in, in biblical Hebrew, <clears throat> the prophet is sort of the spokesman for God. That is the prophet's job is to speak. And so on, on the one hand, we see that God is calling someone to an action that this person doesn't feel they can do on their own. And, and in some respects, the, one of the functions that this does in telling the story is, is it shows us it must be God speaking through Moses because Moses uh, could not do this on his own. But in another respect, we see that for, um, for the prophet to really accomplish their task, God has to be speaking through them. We're going to see this theme come up time and time again whenever prophets are called. The fact that prophets, for some reason or another, are going to say they cannot accept this call because of an impediment in their mouth. They cannot perform the function of speaking for God because there is something wrong with their speech. And so for Isaiah, for example, when Isaiah has this vision, Isaiah chapter 6, um, he, he says, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. Right? He can't speak. He's a man of unclean lips. And so God has to come and purify his mouth before Isaiah can begin speaking. In Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, in the call of Jeremiah, Jeremiah's problem is he's too young. He can't speak. And so God says, I will put my words in your mouth. Uh, in Ezekiel, not to be outdone, um, Ezekiel encounters a similar situation. And in Ezekiel chapter, I think it's chapter 2, uh, Ezekiel has an entire scroll put into his mouth. But in each case, notice what's happening is God is taking the mouth of the prophet and saying, I'm going to place these words inside of your mouth. The text emphasizes the prophet's inability to speak on their own. But now God has placed words inside of their mouth. And so we start to see how it is, um, it's ultimately that action of God that's going to drive uh, the prophet's career. Open their mouth and the word comes out. We, we see that similar imagery in, um, in the book of Amos. What's it like to be a prophet? Uh, well, when, when a lion roars, you have no choice. You, you get scared. Well, you know what? When God speaks, you have no choice. You prophesy. It just comes out. Moses says, I'm slow of tongue. I can't speak. Then the Lord said to him, we're in verse 11, who gives speech to mortals? I mean, who actually gives that? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. But he said, oh, my Lord, please just send someone else. We get this interesting phrase in verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, what of your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put your words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you uh, what you shall do. Notice here, Moses saying, I can't speak. And God's answer is, well, one, I'm going to put the words in your mouth. But then two, I'm going to send you someone who can do that. And that's one, one thing I, I find fascinating throughout, throughout the entire Bible is there is this sense that, you know, no, no single person um, is, is fully equipped for, for meeting the needs in, in the world around us. But oftentimes God brings us into community with others. 
And together, when we begin working together, that's when we start seeing great things happen. We see a similar image in, in the New Testament, this, uh, this metaphor that Paul uses of the church as a body of Christ. And within this body, you know, different people have different gifts. Different people may perform different functions. But it's when we come together and we all bring those different gifts and talents together that we can truly, uh, truly make an impact in this world around us. Sometimes when we feel inadequate, sometimes when we feel like we are not capable of, of walking and living out the mission that God lays for us and living out the calling that God has before us. Sometimes that answer is God brings us into a relationship with someone who can complement our weaknesses. And when we learn to, to accept that and to work with that, you know, you think about it, sometimes it's not always easy to accept a relationship with someone who complements our weaknesses. Because it's not always easy for us to recognize and admit where our weaknesses are. But when we begin doing that, when, when, we, can, when we can assess here are strengths, here are weaknesses, and we can come into relationship with people who complement, who, who bring strengths that, that help our weaknesses, that's when you, know, you think about how uh, the amazing work that can be done when we form that kind of relationship. And that's the thing about operating within the kingdom of God. That's the thing about operating with a sense of divine calling or a sense of divine mission is that ultimately the calling or the mission is not about us. It's not about my pride. It's not about how I look. It's always about something bigger than us. And when we, when we submit to that and humble ourselves before that, it becomes a lot easier. Moses, a prophet of the Lord, and the job of a prophet is to speak. And here we have a prophet that feels like he can't speak. So God brings that prophet into a relationship with someone who can. Let's keep reading. <clears throat> verse, uh, verse 18, so Moses... Um, after all of this, um, Moses goes back to his father-in-law, Jethro, said to him, please let me go back to, to my kindred in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro says to Moses, go in peace. And so Jethro, uh, or so the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who were seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his life or took his wife and his sons, it uses the duel here, two sons, puts them on a donkey, goes back to the land of Egypt. Moses carried the staff of the Lord in his hand. Notice that symbolism of the staff. This staff that is this imagery of a shepherd, right? Moses begins as a shepherd, but now he is taking this shepherding imagery from shepherding sheep to shepherding people. And it's fascinating to think. Moses once fled Egypt. Moses tried to get out of Egypt, and now God is telling him to go back. Go back. Others are still there. Go back and guide others out. And there are some times when the calling of God asks us to go back to places. Places that we may have tried to escape so we can help guide others out. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders that I've put in your power. But, but here's an interesting phrase. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. 
And and here, here's an interesting thing. In in if you've read the story of the plagues of Egypt, you'll notice that there's this refrain that shows up. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and sometimes it's going to say that the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. And of course, you know, uh, theologians go back and forth about what this means about human freedom and divine sovereignty. But one of the fascinating things about the way that that the book of Exodus tells this story is that it is going to tell us that Pharaoh hardens his own heart 10 times. And it is going to tell us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart 10 times in a story about 10 plagues. A story that is ultimately going to result in Israel going to Mount Sinai where they receive 10 commandments. The number 10 is a very significant number in this storytelling, the way that the story is told. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, uh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I said to you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. And now I will kill your firstborn son. Remember how the story is going to unfold when we get to the plagues of Egypt. It's going to culminate with this death of the firstborn. Um, recalling that theme of what Pharaoh was doing to the Israelites in chapter one. Remember in chapter one, Israel or uh, Pharaoh commissions the murder of all of the, uh, the Israelite male children. That's how the story begins. And the story is going to end with that happening to the Egyptians. And here in the midst of this, God positions himself in relationship to Israel. Israel is my firstborn son. <clears throat> and so my friends, this, uh, this chapter comes to a close. Um, with Moses going uh, and meeting Aaron. The Lord says to uh, Aaron in verse 27, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. Um, he goes, he meets Moses. Moses tells Aaron everything that he's supposed to say, everything he's supposed to do. Um, in verse 29, Moses and Aaron assemble the elders of Israel. And in verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and performed the signs in the sight of all the people. The people believed when they heard that the Lord had given heed to the Israelites and that he had seen their misery. They bowed down and they worshiped. And this story of the calling of Moses, notice, there's also this beginning and end, this imagery of worship. When Moses first says, God, I can't do this. God says, the sign for you is going to be worship. And now here, Moses finally finds himself back in Egypt, proclaiming the message for the first time. And we see the people responding, how bowing down and worshiping. And sometimes worship, my friends, may be more of a sign than we realize. I want to pause here for now because uh, we'll, we'll come back next week. We're going to cover all of the 10 plagues of Egypt as a whole. Um, the calling of Moses introduces a lot of the key themes we see play out throughout Moses' life. It introduces Moses' mission. It introduces Moses' insecurities, Moses' uncertainties, and Moses' doubt. And one of the things that I find most encouraging is that the Bible, for, for whatever reason, as it is, as these stories are unfolding, is sure to show us the humanity of some of its greatest heroes. We often hold Moses up as this great hero of the faith, and, and, for, and I think the Bible very much does that intentionally. But here at the very beginning, we see the human behind the hero. We see the uncertainties, we see the doubts, we see the insecurities. And the truth is that on most days, I do not feel very prophetic. 
On most days, I do not feel very significant, exceptional, or anything like that. On most days, I feel very human. And when I come to the Bible and I see the stories of these heroes of the faith, sometimes I think, wow, it must, what it must be like to be them. And then I read these, these very open, these very honest presentations of the human behind the hero. And I realize, wow, maybe we're not so different after all. My friends, I hope that you have found this study valuable. I hope that you have found this beneficial. Um, go forth from this place with these words inside of your hearts so that you can live out the love of God inside of this world because we live in a time when it is important that the love of God shines to our friends, to our family, to our neighbors, and to our community. May uh, the world around us see that there is a love that is living and active in this world today. May you go in peace, my friends.